Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Roe v. Wade has been overturned and American life has changed. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. We've only just begun to see some of those changes. When Roe was overturned, a number of states had uh, what are known as trigger laws, which meant that abortion immediately became a crime once uh, Roe was overturned. But a number of states are poised to follow suit. And, uh, you know, of course, this is a decision that's going to have a dramatic consequences for people all over the country. And we will be talking about those consequences here on the Tanya Acker Show. But first, I wanted to revisit a couple of conversations I had with people about the court itself, about the composition of the court, about the process for picking judges, about whether or not the process has always been as contentious as it is now. The answer from one of my guests is no, it's not. A lot of people have asked, how is it that this court majority, which is, you know, pretty small number of people. I mean, five justices voted to overturn Roe v. Wade. Six justices voted to uphold the Mississippi law that resulted in the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And a lot of folks are like, how is it that they can have so much influence over our lives? And the answer is, that's how court majorities work. First, I talked to Emily Bazelon. She's a staff writer at the New York Times. She's also co-host of the Slate podcast, Political Gab Fest. She writes extensively about the Supreme Court. And then I speak to former United States Senator Russ Feingold, who also sat on the Judiciary Committee, uh, where he helped select judges. He voted on judges and justices. He is now president of the American Constitution Society. We talk about the composition of the court and uh, the confirmation process and Supreme Court reforms. But first, here I am with Emily. So you've written about this Supreme Court not being emblematic or not really being representative of the country, uh, something that you pointed out in one of your pieces, GOP presidents, Republican presidents, have picked six of the last 10 Supreme Court justices, even though what we've seen in elections is that uh, Republican presidents have lost the popular vote in six out of the last seven presidential elections. So what if the response to that is simply, so what? Uh, the Supreme Court was never really intended to be a representative body, was it? I mean, the Supreme Court exists as a counter uh, to majoritarian impulses. So, so what if it's not representative of the country? Well, I think you're totally right. I mean, the structure of the Constitution does not demand that Supreme Court vacancies be filled in a kind of even-handed manner from president to president, right? I mean, we could have, for example, staggered 18-year terms, which applied over time would mean that each president gets two Supreme Court appointments during his or her first term. And that's just not the structure we have. It is also true, however, that there have been a few moments in the Supreme Court's history in which it has had um, a very conservative and even reactionary approach that has really prioritized big corporations and the interests of wealthy people over workers and regular people, the rest of us. And those points of tension have caused a great deal of trouble for the court, right? In the end, the court does not have an army. It has to rely on the elected branches and on we, the people, to enforce its orders and abide by its orders. And so you have these previous moments in American history where you see the justices 
go right up to the line of what the country will tolerate and then back down because it really in the end is a kind of crisis of legitimacy when the court goes too far away from public will in this way that is really entrenching the minority rule of the wealthy and the powerful. And you've written about that too. You've written about times where other institutions have pushed back. I mean, we're having a lot of, there's a lot of public uh, conversation now about whether or not a Democratic Senate, should there be a Democratic Senate, uh, would increase the number of justices, whether or not President Biden uh, would increase the number of justices. He's indicated that he wouldn't do that. But you have written about times where other institutions have said to the Supreme Court, hold on, we haven't always had nine justices. Can you tell us a little bit about Reconstruction and how we ended up with nine and when and another moment in history uh, where Congress said to the Supreme Court, we're not going to let you get involved here because we don't trust you. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So after the Civil War, there was this struggle during Reconstruction over whether the Supreme Court was going to respect the new rights of newly freed um, Black people and whether they were going to uphold, um, you know, the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution, or I shouldn't say uphold the Constitution, but interpret it in a way that would really give meaning to those rights how far the um, goals of freedom and equality the court was going to sign on to. And at the time, post-Civil War, this is a court that is mostly made up of Democrats, which means something different than it does now, because the Democrats are the folks who opposed Abraham Lincoln and were pro-secession. And because of fears that the court was not going to really allow this new country to knit itself back together with broad protections for equality, Congress and the president changed the size of the Supreme Court. It actually changed three or four times in the 1860s, from six to nine to seven to 10 at different moments. So you see there a willingness of Congress to say, this is not a fixed number. And if we're concerned about the way in which the court may undermine our efforts to improve this democracy, these kind of structural reforms we have in mind, we're going to change the court. And this is, again, something that happens during the New Deal. Actually, more famously, you know, FDR at first is really frustrated by a very conservative Supreme Court's refusal to uphold key pillars of the New Deal. He starts talking about court packing. We think of that now as kind of like a dirty, bad word. But actually, when FDR started talking about it, it seems like it was pretty popular across the country. We don't really have polling, but there wasn't like widespread outcry on behalf of the Supreme Court. And what happened was that FDR never went through with his threat to change the size of the court because the justices backed down. One of them, um, Justice Owen Roberts, famously changed his vote in a subsequent New Deal case. And then a whole bunch of people retired. And so FDR got to make a lot of appointments and change what the personnel of the court looked like instead of actually changing its size. Well, and you also mentioned Reconstruction. I mean, that was a situation where Congress took the power to adjudicate away from the Supreme Court. They simply said, we don't want you in this to make a mess, uh, frankly, because they didn't trust the Supreme Court to uphold where the country was going in terms of recognizing the humanity of African-American people. So if you could read the tea leaves, uh, if you care to, do you see or do you anticipate any pushback 
now against this current Supreme Court? Do you think that notwithstanding the fact that it's a political bad word these days to say, let's increase the number of justices, do you think that might happen? Do you see any room uh, for that happening? Well, if you see this as a kind of ongoing chess match with Congress and the president and the court, it's the court's move. And what I mean by that is that if the court starts issuing decisions that are very dramatic, hugely change rights that Americans have come to depend on. I'm thinking of the constitutional right to access to abortion or the ability of states to pass laws that limit gun possession and gun ownership. You might see a lot of feeling in the country that this is a small minority of unelected people who are having a really dramatic effect on their lives and they're going to want something to change. I think the biggest test for the court will be if um, there's a new consensus in the country, a real move toward progressive um, ideas, and you have a major piece of social legislation passed, right? Something like the New Deal or Medicare or Social Security, even beyond the Affordable Care Act. If the court were to strike a law like that down, it would really be saying that the democracy is not allowed to move in a progressive direction in a major way. And then I think there would be people on the streets, there would be a real outcry and momentum toward changing the number of justices in the way you're describing. What I wonder, though, is whether the justices, the conservatives, will actually be um, very aware of that danger. And so they will take other steps that are quite corrosive <laughs> in terms of progressive values or voting rights, um, democratic participation, but that don't whip people up into really understanding what the stakes are. And so we have a court that moves the law and the country to the right, but in a way that doesn't completely threaten the whole legitimacy of the court itself. So would it be fair to say that you think it more likely for there to be a lot of small, subtle attacks on things like voting rights as opposed to something big and dramatic like overturning Roe v. Wade? Do you think that those sort of incremental movement is more likely? Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm not sure because there are a few justices who really seem to want to swing for the fences. Um, (laughs) And so if they get their way, then that could happen. And we have this brand new justice, um, Amy Coney Barrett, and I don't really know yet. None none of us really know how she's going to fit into the picture and how she might change things. But I do think that um, if you want to preserve your power in the longer run as this conservative majority, it would be smarter to make incremental decisions than to, you know, next year overturn Roe versus Wade and create this huge headline and all of this um, protest against what you're doing. That was my conversation with Emily Bazelon, which obviously took place before Roe v. Wade was overturned. Uh, The justices did, in fact, swing for the fences, as Emily suggested that they might. Uh, Next up, here I am with former United States Senator Russ Feingold and president of the American Constitution Society. Uh, They have been very involved and uh, the nomination, the ACS rather, has been very involved in the nomination process in terms of proposing judges uh, and justices. But Russ, of course, when he was in the United States Senate, uh, voted on judges and justices. And we talked a little bit about the confirmation process and what, if anything, he thinks should be done to reform the Supreme Court. Explain what you mean by that. Uh, You are now president of the American Constitution Society. We can talk a little bit later uh, about specifically the work of ACS, 
But tell us what you mean when you suggest that the confirmation norms were flouted. Be specific. Well, we at the American Constitution Society feel that one of the most important things in our country for our Constitution and the rule of law is that the Supreme Court be legitimate and be perceived as legitimate. And for that to happen, you have to have justices put on the court in a fair procedure. But that was not what was done when Justice Scalia died. President Obama had a whole year almost left in his term. He should have been able to not just nominate somebody, but have that person considered. And that wasn't done. That was the longest period in American history, hundreds of days, where they didn't even let him have a chance and they waited till somebody else got to be president. And they did the other thing. They did the reverse. When Justice Ginsburg died, instead of having a normal process, they jammed it through right before the election, knowing there was a good chance that Trump wouldn't be reelected. So both of those seats were really stolen in a way. And that's not how I used to feel about this process. And it's not the way the process should be. It's been a very bad period and it needs to be repaired. Let's talk about what happened toward the end of President Obama's term. His nominee to the Supreme Court was, at that time, Judge Merrick Garland, uh, now Attorney General uh, Merrick Garland. This was literally denying a president who had been elected overwhelmingly the right to have that seat filled by somebody he nominated. And it was unprecedented. So uh, let's just dig into that for a little bit. The Supreme Court confirmation process has always been contentious. Why was that time during which Merrick Garland wasn't given a hearing? What was unfair about it as opposed to just, you know, maybe the Democrats didn't play their cards right? What about that timing made the process unfair? Well, actually, the process for Supreme Court nominations hasn't always been contentious. In recent memory, yes. But going back in our history of our country, um, it was sort of traditional to have large votes, bipartisan votes in favor of Supreme Court nominees. For example, when I voted for Breyer or Ginsburg, in fact, when I voted for Chief Justice Roberts, it was not particularly contentious. There was some dispute, but it was, it was not overly political and it was bipartisan. And so this changed with some of the disputes that have happened in recent years. But in American history, this has generally been viewed as something that should not be so political. So this really is very different. And of course, not even giving a hearing to a presidential nominee for several hundred days, it's just simply outrageous. Thank you for reminding us that history in the world didn't just start uh, 15 years ago. Uh, let's talk about Justice Barrett's confirmation. Now, you say that there almost the exact opposite happened. It was, what, two months left in President Trump's term when he nominated her to replace Justice Ginsburg? How much time was left? I forgot exactly. I think she died in September, and of course the election was in early November, so it was just a few weeks. Explain why that was unfair or improper, or instead one party said, we're holding the cards now, and we're going to play them. We're playing to win. Tell people why you think that's inappropriate in the context of a Supreme Court seat. Well, I know it's inappropriate because I was involved in this process directly four times as a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, twice under a Democratic president and twice a Clinton and twice under a Republican president, George Bush. And in every case, whoever was controlling the Senate, whatever the process had been, it was done in an orderly manner. And what I mean by an orderly manner is there was a gradual process where the nominee came over and started meeting with each of the senators on the Judiciary Committee and the other senators over a process of several weeks. 
while various background checks and other things were done on the nominee. Then we were able to, and I, by the way, I had a chance to meet personally with each of those four uh, for over an hour in my office to get to know the nominee because this is a lifetime appointment. Then we had a, a basically a very long week of hearings. We all got a decent chance to ask questions for a significant amount of time, as well as a private session that's typically held after the fact. Then the process was brought to the floor of the Senate in an orderly manner. And, you know, I have to say that in all four cases, I felt that regardless of who was in charge, and there were different parties in charge, it was a fair and clean process. And it wasn't a rush job trying to get in front of an election. And it was held at a time that was appropriate. So, you know, it's not like a Democrat or Republican thing. That's just the way it was always done. And uh, it's a shame that it's been changed. What I'm happy about I'm confident that this United States Senate's going to do it right, that it's going to be done in a fair, gradual way and not trying to jam it through in five minutes. And if I understand you correctly, Russ, you're also taking issue with the confirmation process, the way in which the process took a turn uh, that was different from what happened when, you know, years before, uh, a process where Merrick Garland didn't get a hearing uh, and a process where you contend Amy Coney Barrett was rushed through under circumstances where, you know, previously they said, we're not going to do that. What sorts of Supreme Court reforms would you advocate? There wasn't really a need to have these kind of time limits in place for Supreme Court nominees in the past, because as I said, it used to be a much more genial process. But the Senate, I think, should create a rule on its own. It can do it on its own. That says, look, when there's a nominee for Supreme Court, you have to consider it for a minimum number of days and a maximum number of days. And, you know, just make it a rule that applies to the Senate. So that the Senate can do on its own. But there also are reforms that should occur that are directly related to the Supreme Court. And one is to get to do something about this so-called shadow docket, which is this thing that's a new abuse really in the Supreme Court. What it is, is what happened with this Texas abortion case, is they managed to keep that law in place and it continues to prevent women from exercising the right to choose in Texas without having an actual hearing, public hearing, and without a real opinion in the case. This is not the way the Supreme Court should act on constitutional cases. And then going beyond that, we think the two most fundamental reforms of the whole court that should be considered now, and we, again, I would not have thought this years ago until I saw these abuses. One is add some seats to the Supreme Court to make up for this theft. Another, is to create a term limit to have, and, and many conservatives have supported this too, maybe an 18-year term limit for a Supreme Court justice that they go on, but it's not for life, it's for 18 years. I think a lot of us think that would be better than having somebody hanging on, literally, someone like Justice Ginsburg, who was so ill, simply because she wanted somebody else to choose her successor. And the same thing happened with Justice Breyer. I mean, today he decided to retire, but uh, he was not happy that he was being pressured by progressives to retire. Uh, but obviously, the motivation was that people felt like, uh-oh, what's going to happen in the next election? So one of the ideas out there is to give every president two choices. In other words, every two years, the president gets to pick a Supreme Court justice. So people would know when they vote for somebody, they would know that that person, whoever becomes president, gets to do that. I've come to the view that would be a much more dignified and appropriate thing than having you know, superannuated people trying to hang around on the court who are ill 
It's something really untoward about that. I'm sure it was not what the founders intended. Term limit does not mean you can't stay on the court. Uh, maybe we'll stop having to nominate people that are you know, 40 or 50, and you could really nominate some of the most distinguished tourists in the country at age 60 or 70, and then they could stay there till later. But people should not feel that because they went on for ideological reasons at age 40, they have to stay there until age 90. That strikes me as kind of unfair to future generations to have their own impact on the law when you have these people that, and by the way, the last three were all like 50 years old. I mean, they're gonna be on there when our law students today are in their 60s. This isn't really the way in which the Supreme Court should function. It's sort of like uh, previous generations controlling the future. But isn't the whole point of having a court to have a repository of information and precedents. Judicial decisions don't aren't supposed to just change with administrations. So if we allow that sort of, you know, continual movement on the Supreme Court, wouldn't that further undercut the notion of its legitimacy as a stable institution that we can trust to rise above whatever our passions of the moment are? Yeah, I don't think so. I think the best thing would be a court that's a mixture of people from different periods. And that's what having this kind of 18 year limit could do. Uh, people would be gradually going off and gradually going on. And I think one of the things that most undercuts the court's legitimacy is the feeling that that all the people on the court don't even know what we're talking about when we're talking about some of these tech things, when we're talking about climate change. I mean, they, the court should include people that have fresh and new perspectives, as well as you correctly suggest people that are have been there longer. And I think that's sort of how it would work. Let's talk about another one of the reforms you mentioned, increasing the number of justices. We haven't always had nine. Uh, I think at the founding of the country, we had six, and then the number changed at different times. Abraham Lincoln wanted to make sure there were anti-slavery justices, so he changed the number. There were efforts to present. I mean, th that number has gone back and forth, or it's changed. I shouldn't say it's gone back and forth. Uh, most recently, FDR wanted to increase the number of justices in order to ensure that his New Deal reform survived. People really didn't like it back then. But you support that? ACS is in favor of increasing the number? We think there are different ways to change the composition of the court. One way would be to add some justices uh, because of the way in which these other seats were stolen. Something has to be done to make up for that. Maybe there's a way that those seats could be potentially temporary. I know that justices serve for life at this point, but if you actually create seats that are only 18 years and they expire, you could do that. So it isn't a permanent thing. It would be a balancing thing to do. Another idea out there is to you know stick with the justices we have, have nine justices, but have the Court of Appeal judges sit on panels with the justices. The, the Constitution does not prevent that. So, so you could have four Supreme Court justices, three Court of Appeal justices, and they could decide. And that way you could have some variety and, and varying of this and not have it all locked down. So I think this is a uh, something that should be considered. You have to make up for this abuse of the process. Unlike the term limit thing that might require a constitutional amendment, this Congress can and the president can do and have done. There's no number in the Constitution of justices that is required. And when you talk about increasing the number, it's interesting. So it's not just okay, now we have nine, we're going to appoint two more of ours for 11, which might then say then, you know, uh, when the election changes, like if the election majority shifts, okay, we're going to add two more. Now it's 13. You just floated what sounded like a more nuanced process where you kind of have a front bench. I mean, to just for 
bad analogy, but kind of a front bench, back bench. There are four of the Supreme Court justices, four of the nine might hear a case and then maybe five circuit judges who would rotate and would hear that. So you could the composition of the court hearing a particular case would change. The number of Supreme Court justices wouldn't necessarily change. Is that that's one of the ideas that's been out there? A lot of scholars have yeah. looked at this more carefully than I have. So some have talked about uh, basically designating all court of appeals justices as potential, you know, Supreme Court justices for purposes of a particular case or particular groupings of cases. So there are various ways this can do. Some of which may seem less political than others, and maybe we should look at them. Tell my audience a little bit about ACS and what you do. Explain who you are, what you do, and what you mean when you say that uh, when you draw this distinction between yourself and the Federalist Society. A lot of people may not know what the Federalist Society is. Yeah, well, they were formed as a conservative group to try to reorient the ideology of the courts and sort of prepackage people starting in law school to become very conservative justices, and they've been very successful. This organization is younger. It was formed 20 years ago, American Constitution Society, and has a very different approach. We have a grassroots approach. We have some 40,000 members across the country. We have chapters in over 200 law schools and over 50 lawyer chapters. And our idea is that we think the law should be for everybody. And it should be based on the diverse country of the 21st century, not simply based on what uh, a group of people in Philadelphia decided, even though we have to look at that and take it seriously, but let's keep in mind that there were no women in there in that room. There were no African-Americans in that room. There were no Native Americans in that room. They were excluded. And so for the Constitution to be legitimate, we need to have a 21st century version of it. So what we do is we promote those ideas through scholars and academics. We do it through our grassroots network uh, that is all over the country and, and do a lot of interesting programs. But we also do advocacy. And so we're going to be advocating for a good uh, process here on the replacement for Justice Breyer. We are advocating for uh, voting rights. We are advocating to abolish and get rid of the death penalty. So we have a series of purposes, but basically it's the largest grassroots progressive legal organization in the country. Don't you love our Constitution? The concept of who the people and we the people are, it grows and changes. I mean, doesn't yeah, it necessarily have to? And it's under threat right now. The Constitution had serious defects. And some of those defects continue to today. Things like the Electoral College, which is heavily biased. So in order for the process to be complete, the Constitution has to evolve and it might need to have to be changed in some ways, as you're suggesting. So if that's done, if these failures uh, of this brilliant document, which even George Washington said, look, there's no way our judgment today is going to be perfect for all time. We have to figure out a way to modernize this thing in a progressive way. And the problem is, is, is some people are trying to take it back by saying you have to only do what the original intent was and what the original text said. That is a way too narrow definition for this thing to work in the 21st century in the diverse society that we live in. Russ Feingold, such a pleasure to have you here. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. 18 years in the United States Senate, now president of the American Constitution Society, an important voice in how we consider and select judges and justices in this country. So thanks very much. I, I certainly would love to have you back, certainly, especially as we continue the process of 
uh, considering Justice Breyer's replacement. So well, thank you. Be, that would be great. It was fun. Tanya, thank you for having me on the show. Well, there you have it, everybody. We took a little look back in order to uh, put some context to the conversation about uh, this very changed legal landscape in which we all find ourselves now with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And we will continue the conversation, certainly, um, about what this changed landscape means and what it looks like and what the uh, actual impacts on people uh, are and will be. So stay tuned for all that. In the meantime, thank you very, very much for being here with me today. Uh, be well, be safe, and I will see you next time. Thanks so much for being here.